so Chris, be sure to greet them for us and tell them you were with us this Sunday and that we're praying for them. So he's on the uh, Medical, International, Medical Education International Advisory Committee of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He's served as a board member of Literacy and Evangelism International for nine years. Chris is well known by several TCFers. Uh, he's the personal physician of several of us here. And uh, we've known Chris for a long time. Uh, years ago, he attended here. And uh, I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of Chris's mission's vision was implanted during his years here at TCF. So let's give a good, warm TCF welcome to Chris Jenkins. hearing me okay? Okay, great. Well, good morning. It's great to be here. And I want to thank the elders for inviting me to participate in this year's TCF uh, mission conference. And as uh, Bill was saying, I used to be a member of TCF, and it's great to see some familiar faces, quite a few familiar faces. None of us have changed at all, right? It's probably been 15 or more years. Well, at least we recognize each other. That's the positive thing. We haven't changed so much, we don't recognize each other anymore. I would like to introduce uh, a special person to me who's hap- who happens to be here this morning to, to support me in my message this morning. That's my father, who's sitting over here, Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Ed Jenkins, and uh, he's a retired surgeon and probably put in my mind the idea of becoming a doctor way back when. Well, uh, when I was with TCF, I used to work with Literacy and Evangelism International, and uh, some of you work for them, and are, many of you are familiar with it. And uh, I used to work with them as a consultant, international consultant, and would travel about four months each year to various countries. What I would do was help other missions and local churches set up adult literacy programs uh, to help them design the materials that were used to teach, train their teachers, help the directors of the program design the overall program. And then I would leave, and they would do it. Well, now I'm a family physician. I work with Inna's Image International, and I travel about four months a year. I go as a consultant to help other missionary organizations and national medical schools and uh, uh, hospitals and, in some cases, ministries of health set up family medicine residencies. And I help them develop curriculum, help them figure out the program, educational rotations, faculty development, then I leave and they do it. So I'm pretty much doing the same thing I used to do 20 years ago, just on the other end of the educational spectrum. Well, anyway, uh, medical education is our door opener, by the way. We do set up uh, these residency programs. And I was amazed to see this morning, I, I kind of knew this, but just seeing it all in one place, how many of the missionaries you support are in his image graduates. Uh, the Hannas, like Bill said, um, the Foxes, uh, the Larrabees, and the Degnans. And uh, three of them, the Larrabees, the Foxes, and the Hannas, are, have an ongoing relationship with us. We work with them in their projects in China and Egypt and the Horn of Africa. Uh, we support the Degnans, but they don't have a project that we're currently involved with. So it's neat to see that connection between Inna's Image and TCF. Well, the theme of this conference, uh, taken from uh, John 4.35, as I understand it, is the task isn't finished and God isn't through with us yet. And I would say that's absolutely right, that um, the task is not finished 
And the, the task of worldwide missions will not be finished until the Lord returns. And I think you can safely put out of your mind that this job is going to be done in your lifetime, your children's lifetime, your grandchildren's lifetime, unless the Lord returns. But until the day that he comes back, the job is not finished. And we have a job to do. He might return in our lifetime. He might come after lunch today. But until he comes, we have a job to do. And I would like to start with a few comments so that we're all on the same page. I think for most of you, these comments will be familiar, but I think it's just a good reminder of some biblical truths and global conditions. First of all, there's some very good things going on in the world today. The church is growing rapidly in many parts of the world, in Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia. The center of gravity of the church has shifted, as you know, from the West to those parts of the world. Uh, that's a good thing. What it means is that the last 200 plus years of missionary effort and indigenous preaching and evangelism has been successful. These places where the gospel was not 200 years ago, it is now because of these efforts. And so that's a very good thing. There are Christians in probably every country of the world, even in countries where there is no functioning church, where they have to be quiet and hidden and maybe just a sprinkling of them here and there. But, it, but almost everywhere, even in places uh, where there is great opposition, like Iran, which is a country where the church is growing as fast as in almost any place in the world. Sudan, Vietnam, India, and elsewhere. Um, God is giving dreams and visions to Muslims. You've heard of that, and it's true. Not only in some places, but in many places around the Muslim world, all around the world. Um, my friend, I have a friend who was a long-term missionary in Afghanistan. He likes to joke that the church in Afghanistan is growing as fast as any place in the world. But, you know, when you start with a small number and you add a few more each year, that gives a pretty high percentage statistically. So statistically that's true, but it's still pretty small in Afghanistan. The Great Commission is being globalized. These younger churches are catching the vision for reaching the unreached themselves, and they're sending out their own missionaries. And these young churches have their own visions. I know you're familiar with the, the underground church in China's vision of going back to Jerusalem. And that isn't just a single target area that they have in mind, you know, Jerusalem. They, they are looking historically, you know, as the church began in the Middle East and Jerusalem, then spread around the Mediterranean basin, and then kind of went west and then to North America, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. They want to close the loop and bring it back to Jerusalem. And that's something that's very much in their hearts and minds this day. Um, Nigeria has a vision they call the 5015, 50,000 missionaries to North Africa, the Muslim part of the continent, in 15 years. And other countries, other churches have their own vision, so they're not just tagging along with what we have done and what our visions are. I um, have some good friends in China where we work, and the, the underground church there, as I said, has a strong vision. They don't know well how to carry it out. And my Chinese doctor friend, um, has said there are approximately 2,000 missionaries that have gone cross-culturally. And, and you hear all kinds of statistics on how many missionaries that China has sent out, and who knows? In Operation World says 100,000, and they include in that number domestic Chinese missionaries, Mis Chinese missionaries who go from one place in China to another. My friend was referring to those who have gone outside the country, so the number's probably somewhere in the middle there somewhere. But he was, he was commenting that uh, most of those 2,000 that he's aware of have come back to China discouraged, defeated, and in some cases disillusioned. And the reason for that is they've made rookie-type mistakes. You know, they go and try to figure out some door opener, as you and I would, and maybe they open a Chinese restaurant in a Muslim country and serve pork. Or, 
they go in the same area of the world and open up a massage parlor, which are very popular in China, but have a very different connotation in the Muslim world. Or they don't know, or they're not aware of the cross-cultural norms, the uh, norms in other cultures that just don't, they don't have any clue about. So maybe the women will be overly friendly with men and, and communicate something they don't mean to communicate and be rejected when they don't follow through in, in the Muslim man's mind. So my Chinese friend and an American missionary who works with David Larrabee, by the way, joined me in Egypt last October to begin figuring out how do our Chinese missionaries survive in the Muslim world. And they spent about a week and a half with me in Aswan, where the Hannahs are. It's a great launching place for a lot of things. And getting their first taste, neither one of them had ever been in a Muslim country. And so they were trying to see, how, what is it like to live in this Muslim country? And what do you need to do to survive? What about language and living and family and all these different things? Their vision is not to personally necessarily go as long-term missionaries. Their vision, this Chinese doctor and my American missionary friend, is to help the Chinese church, especially the underground church, set up the structures to prepare their missionaries to go long-term, successfully. How do you get the missionaries prepared? They have vision, they have zeal, they have passion. They don't have a lot of knowledge, and that's their vision, to go and help the Chinese church set it up. And I'm hoping that they and others will go with me to other Muslim countries um, as they continue that process of learning what it's like. I have a friend in Kazakhstan. We, our group first went to Kazakhstan with a team in 1995 and uh, began working there. Uh, I think some of you know Sasha and Irina Shinkarenko. Uh, they also graduated from our program, and we have maintained a, a very strong relationship with them. But anyway, uh, one of the earlier translators that helped us there was a woman, a pediatric neurologist uh, named Natasha Kim, um, a Kazakhstani citizen. And she has just arrived this weekend, either Friday or Saturday, I'm not sure the exact day, in Kabul to join our team there. After a year's, a year's worth or more of preparation, thinking and praying about it, she has arrived uh, with fear and trepidation because of the unknown there. But nevertheless, this is part of the things that are happening around the world. The young church sending out their own missionaries cross-culturally out, uh, out of their own Jerusalems and Judeas into their Samarias and to the ends of the world for them. Well, using the word missions in its widest sense, the job and the task of missions is far from complete. If we remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he said, I am sending you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, Tulsa would probably be our Jerusalem, America our Judea, and as we look around even in our own backyard, we see there's a lot to be done. As a matter of fact, we're probably losing ground here in the last several decades, and there's much to be done here. As we look beyond to our Samarias and maybe North America and to the ends of the earth, it's very easy to see that the job is far from being complete. There are many people in this world, in this generation, who do not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, our Savior, or obediently follow him. So roughly 41% of the world's population is still without a church in its own culture, its own people group. It's amazing to think about that. Much of the reached world needs to be reached all over again. You think of Europe and you think of other places that have had a church and are now becoming post-Christian. Islam is growing. I think somebody said it, Bill, or someone mentioned that Islam is a growing factor in the world. It's a growing threat to the world. It's, it's uh, resurgent. It's aggressive. It's evangelistic, both by word and the sword, to get its, its message across. Um, Caste Hinduism has yet to be reached. The church is growing in India, but primarily among the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts. Those Hindus who are part of the caste system 
have yet to be reached in a significant way with the gospel. And other similar things could be said of Buddhism, Baha'i, Zoroastrianism, animism, etc. And here's a question for you. Over the last hundred years, what is the one or what is the religious outlook that has grown the most rapidly in the world in terms of percentage and population? What would you think? Hmm? Atheism. The non-religious block, those people who consider themselves atheists or agnostics, secular humanists, materialists, whatever, that has gone from around 1900 from around 0.2% of the world's population to over 13% of the world's population now as you look at China and Europe and other places where they just don't believe in God at all. And that is one of the biggest challenges for us in our own day. So the point of all this is, yes, there is much to be done in our generation. The task is far from being complete. And as a local church, we are to be involved until the Lord returns. You know, some would say that Americans are no longer needed or wanted in missions. Um, they would say our time has passed. You know, indigenous evangelists, pastors, teachers can do more than we can in their countries and on far less money. You know, they don't have to learn the language. They don't have to learn the culture. They don't have to adapt to local conditions. Just send money, some people would say. And, you know, well, there are places where it makes sense to support our brothers and sisters, um, and not go ourselves. As an example, we don't send missionaries to Asbury Methodist Church. You say, well, what do you, of course we don't send missionaries to Asbury Methodist Church. Well, the point is, there are churches around the world in Africa, Asia, Latin America, that are just as mature as Asbury Methodist or the Kirk of the Hills where I go to or TCF that don't need our missionaries per se. And we are part of a worldwide church, and we need to do our mission work together and wisely. But... Never believe for a moment that the day of missions for Americans or the Western Church or TCF is past. The only person who has the right or authority to say, you can sit this out, is Jesus Christ. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where he ever tells a part of his body, your job is done. You can rest until I return. So our job is not over. We may need to go to different places than we have traditionally. And we certainly need to work with the developing churches, the younger churches, in new ways as partners um, uh, now. But we are to be as involved now as any time we ever have in history, as we ever have in history. The task of fulfilling the Great Commission is not over until the Lord returns. Therefore, his command to go is not over for us until he returns. And each generation has to be one anew. You know, there's nothing we can do about the generations that came before us. And we're not going to be here for the generations that come after us. We have to win this generation to the Lord while we're here, while we're still on this earth. And my point is that here is that the task is never over and starts anew with each generation. And I wonder, you know, speaking of being weary, I wonder if the Lord ever gets weary of having to start over again with every generation. I wonder if the Trinity has ever had a dialogue within itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Oh boy, another generation. Here we go again. Have to teach John 3.16 all over again. Have to deal with their ignorance about me, prove that I really exist all over again. You know, answer these silly questions. Can, if God is so great, uh, if God can do anything, can he make a stone that he's, is too big for him to lift? You know, all the silly, silliness as well as the more sophisticated stuff. Deal with the same old sins, the same old rebellion, the same stumbling and fumbling around. Does it never end? You know, I, I wondered myself if God has ever thought that, because he does have to start over each generation. Well, of course he doesn't get tired of it, because he's looking at the big picture. He's looking down the road at the final result. He truly is like the farmer who goes out each spring to plow, to plant seed, 
the weed, to protect the harvest from the birds and the, and the, and the insects uh, from destroying it. And then finally in the fall or late summer to bring that harvest in, bring the crop in. Crop after crop after crop. And so crop after crop and generation after generation brings in a new harvest of believers for the Lord. And that's what he's looking for. He's looking for those who are going to respond to him. And he doesn't, so he doesn't get tired of dealing with their ignorance, our ignorance, their sins, their rebellion, their weaknesses, working to bring about repentance and faith because each generation is rich in those who will respond to him and be with him forever in, in, in heaven throughout eternity. And so he doesn't resent having to start over again with each new generation any more than a farmer resents having to plant a new crop each year. Each crop represents the wealth of the farmer. Each crop represents another year of survival on a physical level. And for God, each crop represents a new generation of children for him that will be with him in eternity. So neither should we tire of preaching the same gospel over and over again, dealing with the same sins over and over again, dealing with the same rejection over and over again from place to place to place. Uh, we're working with the Lord in this. And never get tired of it until we, our time in this generation is over. And I think it's important for us to realize that we're not just doing a task. We're not just uh, obeying a command, go and do this, be faithful servants, etc. We are literally looking for our future brothers and sisters. We are literally enlarging the family of God that we are going to be living with throughout eternity. That's what, what God has allowed us to participate, seeking our currently lost brothers and sisters. And so, you know, if, if we in this room here at TCF were the only ones ever saved, <clears throat> there's a couple of hundred here, you know, we would rejoice, we would be blessed, we would enjoy our, our fellowship and our company and God's presence for eternity. We would, there would be no diminishment of that. But, you know, probably after a century or two, we'd probably get tired of hearing our stories. You know, hey, I heard what God did for you about that situation. I, no, never mind, I don't want to hear it again. You get tired of each other's jokes, maybe. You know, I want to see, and I know this is God's desire, as many people in our family, the eternal family, as we can possibly have. Not just a few hundred, thousands, millions, but billions. And you think of it, you know, through the centuries, God is gathering in his family to be part of it. And we're going to be with all of those, those who came before us and those who will come after us, and we'll be present together around the throne of God as a family to get to know each other and to see in each one of, our, of us, in each one of our brothers and sisters, some aspect, some little nuance of God's own personhood that he has built into that individual. We're all unique, we're all alike, but we're all unique. Kind of like snowflakes, I guess. We all look like snow, but we all have, none of us have the same, quite exactly the same structure. And in each one of us, we're gonna see something of God so that as I get to know you and others as brothers and sisters, I get to know more and see more of what God is like and what he built into his creation. So we are seeking our brothers and sisters. We're not just obeying a command. We're not just involved in, a work, in work or a task. It's seeking our future family. Well, we live in a country, the United States, that is rapidly abandoning its Christian heritage. Our own leaders are tearing out every vestige of our society's biblical heritage that they can with their bare hands. It's just going on around us uh, continuously. And so let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God does bless individuals and societies that honor him, that love him, that obey him? I think the answer to that is yes. And the other qu next question is, will he continue to bless individuals or countries that willfully turn their backs on him, reject his ways, deny the debt of gratitude that we owe him, uh, and deny him? Well, 
God does have great patience, and he has great mercy. You know, he called to Israel and Judah for, to repentance for several centuries through his prophets and in, other, in various ways before his limit was finally reached. And when his limit was reached, he eventually stopped blessing and brought discipline to the nation of Israel in the form of invasion and exile. Knowing this, some of us might ask, with our own country in such spiritual danger, should we spend our time, our effort, our finance, and our lives, the lives of our, our congregation's members overseas? Shouldn't we focus on calling our own nation back to God? And I've personally wondered this myself. Should I spend more time in the U.S. helping to call this nation back to its heritage, back to its roots, back to its God, and away from its slide into the darkness? Well, in the Apostles' day, Israel was in terrible shape, spiritually, politically, socially. It was ruled by an invading nation. It was spiritually had rejected Christ. The few Christians that were there were persecuted and in great danger continuously. There were relatively few in the country who knew or understood the gospel. The early church may have been tempted to pull back, to maintain, to preserve what they already had. But what was God's response? Send some to the Gentiles and send some to the Jews. It's never either or with him. It's always both and. In, in Galatians 2, uh, verse 8, Paul said this, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. We had two great men of God living at the same time from the same country and same culture with entirely different calls from the same God. We should anticipate that God is going to do the same for us. The local church should anticipate that God will call them as a body to be involved with both reaching its own culture and society and still sending out others around the world. We need to be salt and light here, and we need to be sending out people around the world as long as there are people who have yet to hear the gospel. We should be intensifying our efforts in this country. We should be praying for a great awakening, which our nation needs. And beyond our borders, we need to send some and go, just as Paul did in, in his day. We do need to uh, discern the times around the world. Attitudes and conditions are continually changing. The world is not the same as it was when I first went to Kazakhstan in 1995. Countries that have been open to us may close. You know, even as we speak now, in Egypt, in Tahrir Square, there is a demonstration going on against the current government, the one that, that was able to come in because of demonstrations two years ago. So Egypt as a country that has, we've had easy access to for decades now, may close up again. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know what will happen in the rest of the Middle East. Countries that have recently opened are becoming harder to minister in. Again, Central Asia, those republics um, that were Soviet republics became independent nations after the Soviet Union broke up. And again, uh, my first trip there was in 1995. The shoe packs were in Kyrgyzstan, I don't know, 91 or 2 or 3, somewhere in there. They got there ahead of me. I, I had no idea what Central Asia was like until they started telling me about it and showing me pictures. I thought, well, it's kind of close to India. Maybe it's like India. I don't know. <laughs> Far from it. But when we first went, when I first went, we could hold open evangelistic meetings. We had week-long evangelistic camps for medical students and doctors. We could open, uh, openly invite people. We could hope, hold it uh, in, in public facilities and uh, retreat centers without any fear, without any recrimination, without any problems. The same was true in um, Kyrgyzstan. We held uh, retreats there. We had, I think it was in 2006, up to that time, the biggest retreat for Christian doctors and medical students, at least since the Soviet Union broke up, and knowing what the Soviet Union is like, probably 70 years prior to that, if they ever had a meeting like that, and I know it's the biggest one since then, in Kyrgyzstan specifically for doctors and medical students. 
We can't do that in either one of those countries now. Both of those countries have passed laws making it uh, illegal for foreigners to hold those kinds of meetings. And not only for foreigners, but also for the Christians themselves in those countries, the Kazakhstani believers, the Kyrgyz believers. They can't do open meetings as well. And the same is true in Uzbekistan. I assume it's the same in Tajikistan. I haven't been there in quite a while. And Turkmenistan, all those Central Asian countries. So, and then the futures of other countries is just simply unknown. We don't know what's going to happen in Afghanistan after 2014. That's the year that our leadership has decided to draw down or pull back our own troops to a bare minimum or perhaps out altogether. We don't know if that country's going to maintain stability or not. And personally, I think if, if all the foreign troops leave, it probably won't, to be honest. And so what will happen? How, you know, we, we've had in Afghanistan these last 10 years, from 2002 when the Taliban were booted out till now, uh, an opportunity to go as Christian NGO, non-government organization workers, uh, that has not existed in Afghanistan for generations, maybe centuries, at least on the scale that has been the last 10 years. There's been hundreds and even thousands of Christian workers in Afghanistan in these last 10 years, which is unprecedented. There were Christians there during the Taliban times, a small number in the northern part of the country and in other parts of the country, but very small and very restricted in what they can do. So these last 10 years have been an amazing opportunity, even though we still have to be very subtle in how we've gone about it. And we've had a residency program there since 2004. But who knows what will happen when the troops leave. So we need to take advantage of every opportunity that remains to spread the gospel and make disciples while we can. Jesus said in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There is a time when you can't work. Jesus said that about himself. He said that to his disciples. There comes a time when the opportunity is no longer there. So windows of opportunity open, and we have gone through those windows into Central Asia, Afghanistan, China, other places, but windows can also close. You cannot assume that a window that God has placed before you, either as an individual or as a church, will remain open forever. And it doesn't mean we go out in haste. You know, if God has called you, you want to do what you need to do to prepare, to learn, and get ready, have the church's blessing, but you don't want to dilly-dally. The windows will close, and the opportunity may be gone if we don't take advantage of it. <clears throat> Well, I could spend some time on mission statistics. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm glad the water's here. Mission statistics and opportunities and challenges that remain. I think Dr. Ray Smith will do a better job as a mission professor from ORU. But what I want to do now is focus on the conference theme verse and the section that it's found in. The scripture that has been chosen for this morning is John 4:35, and this falls in one of the sections that is one of my favorites in the entire Bible. And I think that in it we see the heart of Jesus for the people of the world as clearly as in any other section of Scripture. Um, I won't read it for time's sake, um, but you remember the situation, I think. This is the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus and his disciples had been traveling from Judea going to Galilee. And they had to go through Samaria uh, to get there. Samaria was considered a foreign group of people to the Jews. They were the remnant of the Jews who had been mixed with the foreigners that the Babylonians had brought into Israel after they conquered Israel and took the other Jews into captivity. And so they had a syncretistic religion. It was a mixture of some Judaic thought and some thought from other religions around the world that had been brought in by these foreign peoples. So he had to pass through Samaria, and they came to Sychar, or Sychar where Jacob's well was. And 
He sat down to rest. And while Jesus was there, the Samaritan woman came to the well to get water, and his dialogue with her began. But before I I begin discussing this woman, as you listen to me, it may seem like I'm piling on her with negative facts and and attributes. Um, But honestly, if my life was put in the scripture as hers was, or maybe many of yours as well, I could do the same thing for myself. And I want to focus on who she is and what kind of life she had lived in order for us to appreciate the magnitude of Jesus' response to her her and his words about her. And Jesus said many things to her that were very significant. He talked about living water, wells of water springing up from within the believer to eternal life. He said that this is where the passage uh, uh, that that is very well known, that God is spirit comes from. He talks about where true worship will take place, who the where the Messiah will come from, from the Jewish people, and that he himself was the Messiah. These are all very important points that he brought out to her, but I don't want to focus on those. I just simply want to focus on this woman and how Jesus viewed her. First, we know that he showed respect to her in not dismissing her questions or refusing to speak with her. As a Jew to a Samaritan, he might have done that or others would have done that. And second, he had an agenda and he led her along with his responses to her questions and with questions of her own. And it was an agenda that she would never have imagined in her wildest dreams, and she had no clue what was about to happen. We learn from this passage that she came to the well at a time when other women wouldn't have been there. The women of Sychar probably shunned her because of her history and her present immorality. She was living with a man who was not her husband. So she came at a time when they wouldn't be there and she wouldn't have to experience their disapproving looks or comments their snide remarks, their jokes, uh, their criticism. And she didn't recognize Jesus for who he was when he saw her. Uh, he did rec- she did recognize that he was from a culture not her own, that hated her people, despised her people, and for whom the feeling was mutual. He, he was a man who looked hot and dirty and tired, not, maybe not respectable in her own eyes. And he asked her for water, which was unexpected coming for, from her, because culturally he wouldn't have been expected to do, that, to do that. As a male, it was improper for him to ask a strange woman, And as a Jew, it was not acceptable to ask of a Samaritan. And they were alone, so it may have raised questions in her own mind, suspicions about his motives. Why would he be talking to her? Well, she acknowledged all these questions when she asked her, or him, how it was that he, being a Jew, would ask him, would ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. She was acknowledging that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. Therefore, why was he asking her for a favor? She was acknowledging that she was a Samaritan woman and he was a Jewish male and would be contaminated by anything that he gave, she gave to him. So why would he do that? Again, her, suspic- her suspicions were aroused. What do you really want, mister? And why should I help you knowing our people's past conflicts and the contempt your people hold for me now? So she was on guard at this point. These points are important for us to recognize because we're going to face the same as missionaries. We're going to go to people who don't recognize us, who don't like us, who don't know us, who may be on a political level hostile to us. And that's what we're going to be facing. Jesus used the unexpectedness of this situation to lead her along. He said to her, yes, you don't know who I am, but if you did, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water. The people we go to don't know our Lord, and they, don't, and they won't recognize us as ambassadors for him. They're not going to defer to us because we're Americans. You know, there's been a time when and there's still us in different places around the world where just simply because we're Americans, we have favor. People are interested in us because of our wealth, our educational system, our, uh, the, development, the scientific developments that we've uh, been able to achieve over the years. 
But as you know from the news, more and more people are looking at us negatively. And uh, it very well be the experience for us that when we go, because they don't know the Lord, they're not going to recognize us as, as his ambassadors, and they're not going to extend to us any particular favor. You know, it's interesting that she didn't know who he was. You know, the demons knew who he was. They would cry out and say, have you come to torment us before the time? Many Jews knew who he was. You know, John the Baptist, it was revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah. His disciples had it revealed to them that he was the Messiah. Um, the crowds that followed along at least knew he was a great teacher or a prophet, and some of them thought, well, maybe he is the Messiah. But this Samaritan woman, going about her daily business, knew nothing of these things, didn't recognize him for who he was, and only saw a typical man from a hostile culture uh, who wanted something for her, even though custom dictated that they have nothing to do with each other. And that is how they're going to see us in many parts of the world. Well, I'm going to look at her history a little bit. And based on her history, I would say she was probably a difficult person to get along with for any length of time, maybe overly sensitive. But she was a combination of conflicting, contradictory qualities. She was a woman who was attractive enough and personal enough that men wanted to marry her or live with her. And that happened over and over again. But on the other hand, she didn't know how to get along with any of them long enough or well enough to have a long relationship, a significant relationship with any of them. We learn from Jesus that she had been married five times. And the implication, of course, is that she'd been divorced five times. And that's how both his, his disciples and the church through the, through the years have taken this passage. Not that she was widowed five times, but that she was divorced five times. And, um, and now she was living with a man outside of marriage who was not her husband. She was shacking up. And we don't really even know if this was the first man after her last marriage. It's simply, Jesus simply said to her, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And she may have had other men after her last marriage that we don't know anything about. So you think of this history that she experienced, and you think of the pain of marriage and divorce five times over. You know, five romances, five relationships that started with high expectations and ended in disappointment and delusion. You know, we th typically think of a marriage involving two young people coming together, uh, having some relationship with each other, uh, in love with each other, with great anticipation, excitement, love, uh, as they begin their life together. And in her case, it would have been the same. They would have, the, her first husband and she would have known each other. And although they were not Jews, their traditions were similar, that both families would have been involved, both would have had to agree to the marriage, there would have been some kind of arrangements, and it would have been a big event in the lives of both of those families. They would have had traditions and rituals to observe and all the hopes and dreams that go with the start of a marriage. But somehow, after the marriage, that first marriage fell apart. Some disagreements, some coldness that set in, <clears throat> some barriers that were raised, and finally, it ended in divorce. Well, then she got married a second time and went through it all over again. Probably the families somehow were involved to try to make this one work out, and that one fell apart as well. And then a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. And probably, or at least my guess is, that the families were no longer involved. Maybe they had quiet, private ceremonies to keep it from being public. And in these marriages, she never learned how to keep a husband. She never learned how to pick a husband. And now that she was, now that, now she was on her sixth, at least, relationship, she doesn't even bother to marry too painful, too embarrassing, and no real confidence that this one's going to work out well either. And I have to ask myself, how could someone put herself through this? 
How could anyone go through all this pain and yet still want to live with another man? You know, some men are addicted to pornography. I wonder if she might have been addicted to men. She just had to be with somebody. And for those counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists in the audience, uh, this passage presents a wealth of material for analysis and thought. You know, what this woman could have been like. You know, she was no Anna. You remember Anna in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to dedicate her. Anna was an old woman, and she had been married and then widowed after seven years of marriage. And then she spent the rest of her life in the temple worshiping and serving the Lord and fasting and praying and those kinds of things. This woman was no Anna. This woman always wanted to be in a relationship with a man no matter how painful the outcome might be. You know... I know a number of divorced people where I work and in the setting I work in, the medical community. And uh, for many people, both men and women, divorce is so painful that they give up on marriage and maybe feel bitter toward the opposite sex, sex, is resentful, hurt, wounded. But this woman just kept on. She went through the divorce with all its pain and married again. Went through the divorce with all its pain, married again. Didn't give up on it. She kept on going with these relationships. And, you know, I want to do a little speculating. And um, uh, this, my speculation is one possible scenario of several that are, prop, are possibly applicable to her life. But I wonder if she had experienced an entire lifetime of rejection. You know, perhaps she was like many women who, growing up, had fathers who were not there for them, maybe through neglect or maybe through abuse. But as a result, she had, did not have a strong, healthy relationship with a father. And a void was created in her young soul that had not been met through her own father. And perhaps, and again, this is my speculation, she was driven by this need for the acceptance of a father, for the affirmation of a father, saying, you are a worthwhile person, you are a worthwhile young woman, to receive a father's love, strength, guidance, and acceptance, and all the other things that a father should be for his children, both boys and girls, not having had that, driven by that, to seek that through other men. And so if that was the case, and there are other, are other possible scenarios for her background, but this is at least a legitimate one, a legitimately possible one, it would have, um, she would have brought in a, a, an incredible weight into any marriage relationship she would have had. She would have brought in uh, the desire to seek to meet the need, again, of a father in her life and all that emotional health that that brings in other men. And so she went on from one man to the, to the, to the next, rejecting those who didn't measure up to her standards and perhaps driving away those that just couldn't bear the burden of trying to be both a husband and a father to her and try to meet the need that she had. So rejection may be all that she ever knew in life, but whatever the case, it was certainly her experience when Jesus met her. She had five marriages that didn't work out. She was rejected by her society. This woman was a failure in life by many measures. Again, five husbands. She completely failed in any significant relationship. And whatever the reasons for her divorces, she didn't learn from them and repeated the scenarios over and over again. She was probably a hard person to get along with. She was immoral. And not surprisingly... She gave up a marriage, but still wanted to be with a man, and so she lived with a man outside of marriage. She was a breaker of God's law on many levels. She broke both the Jewish laws of Moses and the Samaritans' own religious laws. All the religious leaders of her day, the Jewish priests and Pharisees who were entrusted with God's law, 
and the Samaritan priests with their own scriptures, their own rituals and traditions would have rejected her. They would have looked at her as one of the sinners and tax collectors who the Pharisees um, insulted, who uh, would hang out with Jesus and who Jesus would have lunch with and ate with. She would have been like an adulteress, like the Jewess that the Pharisees brought to Jesus in the temple to see if he would agree to stone her with them in John chapter 8. She would have been what the Pharisees and priests called part of the crowd which does not know the law and is accursed. And those were were Jews, common Jewish people that the priests were referring to who were following Jesus from place to place or going out to see him when he came to their town. She was a social pariah. She had been rejected by the other woman of her community. You know, if she was alive today and walked into a medical clinic, she probably would be a difficult patient to have. Maybe demanding, maybe clinging. Um, and, you know, I think in our clinic we have a lot of Christian nurses and staff, and so I hope and think this would not happen, but I think in many of the secular clinical settings she probably would have been the target and the object of, of snide remarks or jokes and laughter uh, because of her neediness and... Um, demanding nature. Well, this was the woman that Jesus met in the well. She was wounded and broken. She'd been wounded by her family growing up, possibly, if my scenario, my speculation was correct. She's been wounded and scarred by a series of broken relationships. She was wounded and rejected by society. She was wounded by self-inflicted choices leading to immorality and lawlessness. She was a covenant breaker with God and man. For all her faults, she wasn't stupid. She was able to hold a conversation with Jesus. She is not a fearful person. She wasn't afraid to be alone with a stranger, a foreigner, and speak her mind, nor was she concerned, at least outwardly, what others in her community would think of her speaking to a strange man alone, although maybe she just gave up on trying to please them at all, just given up on that. Toward the end of Jesus' conversation with this woman, his disciples came up and saw her speaking, saw him speaking with her, and they were shocked. That all the things we've just talked about, the cultural taboos, the religious cleanness and uncleanness, and all the things we just talked about went through their minds as well, and they were shocked that he would speak to her. But his response to them changed the way they and hopefully we would ever look at people around the world, to see the people of the world. John 4.35 says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. You know, this is a beautiful picture, and it's been handed down generation after generation through the church uh, in in sermons, in preaching, uh, in art, in work as a motivator for going out and serving the Lord. Uh, And as you think about it, you think of fields of golden wheat uh, with waves of ripples rolling through them as the wind blows through those uh, wheat fields you know, heavy with wheat kernels or seeds, uh, bending those golden stalks over. Um, I've been in a few countries, uh, Nepal being one of them, where I've had the privilege of hiking up the mountains and being able to look down on fields of wheat. And it's a windy place. You see the wind blowing through, and it's just literally like a wave going through those fields. It's beautiful. And if you've ever been in uh, Kansas in the late summer, early fall, you see the same thing. uh, Huge fields, acre after acre, mile after mile of wheat, and it's very beautiful. And then as you continue thinking about this, you don't necessarily see the, I don't see in my mind, the combines rolling through, uh, cutting down the wheat and going on. I picture the, the men out there with their sickles, their scythes, swinging them through the wheat, cutting through the stalks of wheat and bringing the, the, it down and then going back, gathering it up, binding it up in bundles and putting their, 
these bundles on their shoulders and carrying them back to the barn for safekeeping. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful picture. And uh, it's a motivating picture. Well, this is where Jesus shocked his disciples. He said, this woman and all those coming with her is the beautiful harvest that I came for. This woman, with all her sin, all her brokenness and failure, is the one who motivated me to put down my divinity, to leave heaven, come to earth as a servant in the form of a man, and die for. She is the one whose redemption, Jesus was willing to give his life to pay. And of course, all the other Samaritans that were coming with her, and all her former husbands, and even her lover. This woman is an example of what motivated him to become a man and pay the price of dying for. And she is the one, in the process of saving, that Jesus fulfilled his Father's will and work for him. God the Father loves this woman and wants her in heaven. You know, earlier in this conversation with his disciples, they had said to him, Teacher, eat. And he said to them, I have food that you don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his, father, and accomplish his work. It is the Father's will that I speak to this woman whom you reject. It is his work that I am doing, seeking this woman who you reject from another country, culture, and religion. And his love for her represents his love for all mankind. He told them, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. This field of broken men and women from the wrong ethnic group, the wrong nation, the wrong religion, lawless, immoral, rejected by society, rejected by organized religion, guilty before God from a nation that is hostile to and despises our nation who do not know who, where, or how to worship God, as Jesus told this woman, nevertheless is a valuable treasure in the eyes of God, a beautiful harvest in his sight, greatly loved, John 3.16, lost children, John 1.12, redeemable, Luke 18.27, transformable, John 18, 31 through 36, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Worth the price, Luke 15, 21 through 24, and Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus looked on this woman as he sat by Jacob's well, tired and hot and dirty, and saw her sitting at his table in heaven. Whole, pure, strong, reconciled, full of his wisdom, and in an unbroken relationship with him and the Father and all his other children, full of purpose, reflecting his glory to the universe, joyful, eager to live and experience all the good things God has in store for her, no longer ashamed, no longer an outcast. She is worth the price, said Jesus. She is the harvest I came for. You know, Jesus is not afraid of the lost. He's not afraid of us. He's not afraid of our sin. He paid the full price to be able to forgive all of our sin. So he wasn't afraid of her immorality and her ignorance and her lawlessness. He's not afraid of our weaknesses. He's not afraid of our flaws, our imperfections, our wounds, our ignorance. He has power to heal, to transform, to make new. He's not afraid. And he was not afraid of any of the barriers this woman had to knowing God. He knew he could open the way for her to the Father. And so he spoke to her. And he looked at her with all her brokenness and said, if she will just give herself to me, I can make her new. I can make her what she was supposed to be. It is worth the price for us to enter into his labors and his sufferings, to see our own generation saved, redeemed, transformed, and sitting with Christ, our big brother in heaven at his table. 
for all eternity in his house, fulfilling his purpose and the freedom he won for us in loving relationship with our maker, father, and redeemer, our part of our eternal family. The task is not finished by any stretch of the imagination, and God is not through with us yet. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Amen.